It's about finding energy and strength when you have none. Like a lot of times in life, like that situation right there, man, it's the worst time of your life. There's energy all around us, but we think that we have to have, it has to come externally a lot of times. We have like a TV in front of us, watch somebody, listen to a podcast, listen to a great music. A lot of times in life, it's quiet. And those are the times when you want to run and hide. You got to be able to find energy. You got to make up games, make up tricks, make up whatever you can to get to the next evolution of life. So taking souls is just another way. It's not about hurting the person you're against. It's about finding a tactical advantage in every situation you physically can. As far back as I can remember, I craved a seat at the table. Even when I was a punk ass teenager, I knew that one day I wanted to sit at that mythical table among the greats in my field. I suppose you can trace it back to a deep desire for respectability. I desperately wanted to be somebody because I felt like a nobody. That's why I was drawn towards special ops at such a young age. And when I realized I was flunking out of school, it's why I was so motivated to change. I knew that I would never arrive at that table unless I took myself and my life more seriously. And yet, as much as I wanted to be among the greats, the decision makers, the anointed ones, I spent years waiting for a formal invitation. I don't know how many times I visualized receiving that embossed golden ticket to the dinner I dreamed of where steak and lobster tail would be served by those who admired and wanted to be near us. But I expected to have to prove something first. I figured if I inserted myself into the proper organization or structure and met the standard consistently, someone would notice me, a mentor or guide, and give me directions to where all the power players gathered. I was not looking to be at the head of their table. I wasn't delusional. I just wanted a seat. In the meantime, I became one of the waiters who served the elite. Before long, some of my peers, who in my mind weren't as qualified as I was, were seated at the table too. I sucked it up and served them, still hoping that one day I'd be tapped on the shoulder and someone would pull out a chair for me. I wanted so badly to be anointed and validated by my superiors. I wanted to be told, you have finally arrived, David Goggins. You are now recognized to be one of the best. Trouble is, that formal invitation rarely arrives, and for me, it never did. But while I waited, I observed my so-called superiors at close range. I watched them work, studied how they presented themselves, and realized that most of them were fairly common mother And I wanted to be uncommon, because it is the uncommon story the uncommon leader that inspires others to seek more of themselves, work harder, and rise to the occasion. It's no secret that the vast majority of people prefer to be led because it's easier to follow someone else than to break your own trail. Yet all too often we are led by bosses, teachers, coaches, and powerful officials who wear the rank and title and deploy optimistic speeches management lingo as strategies they learn in some university or seminar or from their colleagues at that table in the executive suite but do not inspire us perhaps it's because they talk way too much and do far too little maybe it's because their own lives are out of control whatever the case over time it becomes obvious that these men and women 
who we once admired from afar, don't have what it takes to lead themselves, let alone anyone else. Yet when they reject or ignore us, we allow that to limit us and our ability to influence the organization we belong to and the people around us. It doesn't have to be that way. Too many people mistake leadership for what happens at the top, in the spotlight, around that mythical table, when some of the most powerful leaders are hard at work in the shadows. They know that opportunities to make a difference in the lives of their neighbors, family, co-workers, and friends are ever-present. They wield massive influence without having to say much, if anything at all. And the first step in becoming one of these unsung heroes is learning how to become a self-leader. Back in 1996, when I was a 21-year-old airman in a tactical air control party unit, I subscribed to the basic definition of leadership like almost everyone else. A leader was the person in charge, the one with the highest rank, the fat salary, and the doting support staff. A leader had the power to hire and fire and make or break entry-level peons like me. I never thought a person who had no particular authority over me would end up being such a major influence in my life. I had no clue that I would soon get a crash course in self-leadership and how it can turn anyone into a powerful example that is impossible for others to ignore or ever forget. Typically, TACP is the liaison between the Air Force and the Army, and I was stationed at an Army base in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where the renowned Air Assault School is located. Air Assault is known to deliver the 10 hardest days in the U.S. Army. Nearly half of every class flunks out because it combines hard physical training with intellectual rigor as candidates complete an onslaught of physical evolutions and learn how to sling load choppers with heavy equipment, such as Humvees and fuel blivets. Everything must be rigged in a precise way to ensure the load will break away upon delivery at the right place and time. As an Air Force guy assigned to Fort Campbell for four years, I knew two things. I was guaranteed to be served orders to attend air assault school and that if I didn't graduate with that badge on my uniform, it sent a clear message that I lacked motivation and was an underachiever. Now, did I prepare as if those orders would arrive at any moment? No, I did not. I had everything I needed to become honor man at my fingertips, but I didn't tailor my workouts to air assault school. I had access to the obstacle course and the two ruck march courses and never got out there for a single training run. I also failed to crack the books or leverage the guys I worked with who had first-hand knowledge of the sling load test. There were new air assault classes running every month. I could have trained and studied my ass off, then requested air assault school when I was ready. Instead, I waited for those orders to land in my lap, and when they did, I showed up unprepared. The fun started with a physical test on day zero, when candidates must run two miles in under 18 minutes before completing that mother an obstacle course made up of rib crushing wall climbs, a rope climb, and a balance test on a network of beams that lead to platforms as high as 30 feet off the ground. There were so many people there that nobody really stood out. And a good chunk of them failed to achieve the basic benchmarks required to be admitted into the school. But I made it before dawn on day one. I approached the arches that formed the gateway to the air assault campus alongside man I hadn't noticed the day before. Though it was dark, I could tell he was about my height 
and not much older than me. Now that we officially belonged to the air assault class, whenever we crossed under the arches, we were required to perform a set of five and dimes. That's five pull-ups and 10 elevated push-ups. We would cross beneath those arches several times a day and we always had to pay the same toll. We grabbed the bar at the same time. I knocked out the standard five pull-ups, but by the time I'd hit the dirt and finished my push-ups, that guy was still on the bar. I stood and watched him perform far more than five pull-ups. Satisfied, he dropped to his feet, fell forward, and hammered a lot more than 10 push-ups. Only then did he report to class. We had a hard day of PT ahead. It would include many more push-ups and pull-ups, and the rest of us were content to meet the standard, hoping we would have enough energy to survive the next 10 days. Yet this man was ready to smoke himself on the dark early morning of day one. It was the first time I'd ever seen someone do more than what was required. I'd always thought my job was to meet the standard laid out by the brass, but he was clearly not concerned with what was expected of him or what was to come. Who the f is that guy? I asked nobody in particular. That's Captain Connolly, someone said. Okay, so he was an army captain, but in the air assault class, he had no authority at all. He was one of us, just another student trying to earn his badge. At least, that's what I assumed. A few minutes later, we lined up for a six mile march loaded down with 35 pound rucksacks. I was only a year and a half out from running six minute miles and coming in close to the top and near every run in Parasecu training. In the run up to day one, I'd actually had delusions that once again, I'd be at the front of the pack on all the runs and might even win a few, but I'd been measuring myself against the general population. My mind was set on that bell curve where 99.999% of the population operates. And when it came to getting after it, I figured I plotted out near the top compared to the rest of the class. Didn't matter that I wasn't 175 pounds anymore and that I'd gained 35 pounds from lifting heavy and eating like sh I still look strong and fit to most people, myself included. Oh, but I was softening up nicely. When the instructors yelled, Go, not everybody went out hard. We had 90 minutes to complete the course and at least half the class intended to walk a good chunk of it. I planned to walk the whole thing, knowing that I would bank time running, which would put me out front. For the first two plus miles, I was in the lead group of five guys, including Captain Connolly. Most of us were smoking and joking. We were running fairly hard, but we were also ripping on each other. And within 25 minutes, I was gassed. The captain, who had been silent the entire time, had barely started to sweat while we were wasting valuable energy bullshit. He was self-contained and dialed in, focused on kicking our collective ass. Around mile three, the road pitched up into the limestone hills and the whole group seemed to downshift at once and started to walk as if we shared a common mind. We were breathing heavily and I knew walking the ups and running the flats and downs would be the best way to finish with a decent time and still have something left in the tank for the next several hours of physical training. Captain Connolly did not downshift. He ran on ahead of us, silent as a ghost. Some of the guys squawked about catching him when he inevitably blew up. 
but I was certain we wouldn't see him again until the finish line. Captain Connolly was an entirely different animal. He was off the bell curve, an outlier. He was not one of us. It does something to you when you are running close to what you perceive as your limit. Back then, I still topped out at 40%, and there was someone else out there who makes the difficult look effortless. It was obvious that his preparedness was several levels above our own. Captain Connolly did not show up to simply get through the program and graduate so he could collect some wings for his uniform and belong to the unspoken fraternity of supposed badasses at Fort Campbell. He came to explore what he was made of and grow. That required a willingness to set a new standard wherever possible and make a statement, not necessarily to our dumbasses, but to himself. He was respectful of all the instructors in the school, but he was not there to be led. The ruck march ended at the arches, and on our approach, we could all see Captain Connolly's silhouette as he completed pull-up after pull-up after pull-up. Once again, he made a mockery of the standard as the rest of us were content to file our five and dimes. Compared to our peers, our performance was well above average, but after watching Captain Connolly flex, it didn't feel like much because I knew that while I had been fine with just showing up, he prepared for the moment, attacked the opportunity, and showed out. Most people love standards. It gives the brain something to focus on, which helps us reach a place of achievement. Organizational structure and attaboys from our instructors or bosses keep us motivated to perform and to move up on that bell curve. Captain Connolly did not require external motivation. He trained to his own standard and used the existing structure for his own purposes. Air Assault School became his own personal octagon where he could test himself on a level even the instructors hadn't imagined. He understood that his rank only meant something if he sought out a different certification, an invisible badge that says, I am the example, follow me, and I will show you that there is more to this life than so-called authority and stripes or candy on a uniform. I'll show you what true ambition looks like beyond all the external structure in a place of limitless mental growth. He didn't say any of that. He didn't run his mouth at all. I can't recall him uttering word one in 10 days, but through his performance and extreme dedication, he dropped breadcrumbs for anybody who was awake and aware enough to follow him. He flashed his toolkit. He showed us what potent, silent, exemplary leadership looked like. He checked into every goal group run, which was led by the fastest instructor in that school, and volunteered to be the first to carry the flag. When the sling load test came around, I thought that might be his kryptonite. I was hoping that he was just a physical stud, a freak of nature. I wanted to find a flaw in him because it would make me feel better about myself. But when the instructors asked for a volunteer to be the first to take a test that half the class would fail, he didn't raise his hand or say anything out loud. He simply stepped forward to be tested on helicopters, reach pendant sling sets, proper rigging and inspection before anyone else. He aced that too. He won every last physical evolution, was at the top of the class on each of the exams and raised the level of the entire group. We all wanted to be more like him. We wanted to compete against him. We used him as a measuring stick, as someone we could emulate because 
He gave us permission to go beyond the standard. Thanks to him, I volunteered to carry the flag on one of the gold runs. And to this day, it is one of the hardest runs I've ever completed. Without the use of your arms, it's impossible to generate the same power and momentum. And that flag feels like a parachute tugging you backward. However, I was nowhere near his physical condition. And when the 12 mile ruck march came around on day 10, our final test in air assault school, all I could do was watch him disappear into the distance as he shattered the air assault record for the fastest 12 mile time ever. I graduated mentally and physically exhausted, but felt almost nothing when I was awarded the wings I thought would anoint me as a made man around Fort Campbell. I was still too puzzled and irritated by Captain Connolly's level of effort, which felt almost confrontational. It wasn't a lot of fun to be around him, yet I relished every second. He made me uncomfortable because he exposed my lack of dedication to giving my best effort each and every day. Being around people like that forces you to try harder and be better. And while that is a good thing, when you're inherently lazy, what you really want are some days off. The Captain Connollys of the world don't give you that option. When they are in your foxhole, there are no days off. His conditioning was clearly off the charts, and I'm not talking about the physical aspect alone. Being a physical specimen is one thing, but it takes so much more energy to stay mentally prepared enough to arrive every day at a place like Air Assault School on a mission to dominate. The fact that he was able to do that told me it couldn't possibly have been a one-time thing. It had to be the result of countless lonely hours in the gym, on the trails, and in the books, most of his work was hidden, but it is within that unseen work that self-leaders are made. I suspect the reason he was capable of exceeding any and all standards consistently was that he was dedicated at a level most people cannot fathom to stay ready for any and all opportunities. Those who have not learned to self-lead show up to their lives like I did air assault school. They don't prepare or have a plan of attack. They wait, get shotgun into something, a school, a job, a physical test, then wing the motherfucker. Think about how much information is out there on the internet. Any place you want to build your skills, from boot camp to Harvard Business School, from EMT certification to an engineering degree, is described online in granular detail. You can study the prerequisites and start on the coursework before you are even admitted. You can prepare as if you are already there. So when the time comes and you do land that opportunity, you are ready to smash it. That's what a self-leader does no matter how busy their lives are. Not because they are obsessed with being the best, but because they are striving to become their best. Self-leaders rarely rest. In the heat of battle, they become dolphins who sleep with one side of their brain on alert and one eye always open, so they are ready to outsmart, outswim, or battle their predators, and they are awake enough to float back to the surface and take another breath. In order to sustain that amount of energy output, Self-leaders return again and again to the organizing ideals of their lives. They live for something bigger than themselves. And because of that, their lives swell and glow with an energy that others can feel. It can also start a chain reaction that challenges and awakens people to the untapped power coil within themselves, the power that they're wasting with each passing day. 
setting an example through action rather than words will always be the most potent form of leadership and it's available to all of us. You don't have to be a great public speaker or have an advanced degree. Those things are fine and have their place, but the best way to lead a group is to simply live the example and show your team or classmates through dedication, effort, performance, and results what is truly possible. That's where I'm at now. Thanks in part to the example Captain Connolly set, and because I was aware enough to recognize that he was a rare breed and humble enough to learn from him. However, as you know, the transformation didn't take right away. Sadly, once air assault school was over and Captain Connolly was out of my life, the spark faded and I fell back into my old ways. While I never stopped thinking about that 10 day experience, I didn't have it within me to self lead just yet. I should have taken the lesson from those 10 days and applied it to the next 50 years of my life. I should have imagined Captain Connolly watching me each and every day. Believe me, if you think you're being watched, you live differently. You're more detailed and squared away. That's not how it went for me. It would be another three years of slippage before I exhumed the Connolly files from my personal archives and studied them to become a self-leader. Two years in the SEAL teams was all it took to realize that nobody was going to show up to coach or guide me to my seat at the table. But by then, I wanted off the bell curve. I wanted to make my own opportunities and eat alone at my table. I wanted to become an outlier. I went on to beat Captain Connolly's 12-mile ruck march time, which had been tattooed on my brain for six years while doing an 18-mile ruck march at Delta Selection. I did it on a much harder course with a heavier pack. And for the first 12 miles, I imagined that he was still out there in front of me, dropping breadcrumbs, daring me to exceed the standard he set years ago. He was the first one to show me how to do more with less and that it was not just possible to dig deeper, but mandatory if you are striving to be your best self. When I eclipsed his time, I realized I was no longer chasing Captain Connolly. From then on, every school, course, race, or record I took on became an arena for my own self-development. When you live like that, you are usually far beyond the influence of parents, teachers, coaches, or other traditional mentors and their philosophies. In order to stay humble, you'll need to make sure you are living up to your own code. A lot of great organizations have inspiring mission statements. Elite military units are built around an ethos or creed that defines how their men and women are supposed to conduct themselves. Each time I arrived at a new school or endeavored to join a new special operations unit, I studied and memorized the ethos or creed, and those words never failed to move me and most of my peers, but it's human nature to become complacent. No matter how powerful the organizational ideals, even well-meaning people who love what they do, especially those with seniority, will lack the mental endurance to live the creed on the day-to-day. And if most people within an organization don't truly follow or adhere to the founding principles, then what are they really worth? So I took my own oath to self. I live with a day one, week one mentality. This mentality is rooted in self-discipline, personal accountability, and humility. While most people stop when they're tired, I stop when I'm done. In a world where mediocrity is often the standard, my life's mission is to become uncommon amongst the uncommon. 
we all owe it to ourselves to stand for something. Principles give us a foundation, solid ground we can trust and build on as we continue to redefine what's possible in our own lives. Sure, some will be put off by your dedication and level of effort. Others will call you obsessed or think that you've gone crazy. When they do, smile and say, I'm not crazy. I'm just not you. Don't rely on some other group's ethos or company's mission statement to be your guide. Don't walk around aimlessly trying to find purpose or fit in. Mind your core principles and come up with your own oath to self. Make sure it is aspirational and that it challenges you to strive and achieve and live by it every day. When everything gets murky and messed up and you feel alone and misunderstood, revisit your oath to self. It will ground you. At times, you will need to revise your oath given the shifting priorities that arise with life changes, but don't water it down. Make sure it is always strong enough to serve as your daily compass as you navigate life and all of its challenges. Living by this oath, your oath, you will never need anyone else to lead you because no matter what happens, you will never be lost. Who will you become and what do you want to stand for? Are you ready to be the standard? If you are willing, share your oath to self 